We have been going through 1 John, and I pray that you've been uh, benefiting from our study. Last week, we spoke of what theologians call the beatific vision. It is that vision that Adam was promised in the garden, that heightened communion bond where he will not only know God, but he will see God face to face. That he would have face to face interaction with God Almighty. And we know that through the fall, that it is that vision that Adam lost for all of us. You see, when Adam fell in the garden, what he lost ultimately was God Himself. He lost communion with God but also he lost the ability for that communion with God to be heightened to a degree where he would see God face to face. And what we learn from the Gospels, specifically in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, is that Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man. And since he is truly man, he takes us to the place that Adam fell to take us to. We become as it were, more human in Jesus Christ. We do what man was destined to do, and that is to see God face to face. And the glorious news of the gospel is that when we die, yes, we will see God in a way that we have never seen Him before. We will behold the Son in such a way that it does seem like we see Him face to face, but ultimately when the trumpet blasts, and when the clouds break, and when the Son of God returns in all of His glory and majesty, our bodies will be reunited to our souls. And with the eyes that we have now, we will see Jesus Christ. That is the hope for the Christian, is it not? To see Jesus Christ face to face. And when we look upon Jesus Christ, although we look at the glorious body, the glorious human nature of Jesus Christ, we also will see God himself. And when we see Jesus, we see the Father. In the Spirit, we will behold the Son. And when we behold the Son, we will behold the Father. I don't know about you, but that is the great longing that I have. That is one of the reasons why, as a Christian, we can say to ourselves, Lord, take us now. We want to see you now. We want to see the one whom we learn about, the one who we read about. Imagine that, saints, the one who you spend your days reading about and hearing of from preachers and various theologians. That's one who you spent a lifetime learning of you will one day see. And when you see him, it would seem like all that you have learned about him was for what use? Because he is going to surpass your deepest and highest thoughts of him. When you see God face to face, you will not drop dead as Isaiah did, but you will take delight in him. You will not see merely a judge, but you will see your Savior. We have no reason to fear heaven. For heaven, as Jonathan Edwards said, 
is a world of love. And the centerpiece of that world of love is the one who is love itself, Jesus Christ. Now, what we want to talk about this morning is if I was to ask you the question, what is the greatest hindrance in your Christian life? What would your answer be? What is the greatest hindrance in your Christian life? What would your answer be? What is it that hinders you from becoming the Christian that you want to be? Or perhaps what keeps you back from the Christian that you desire or dream of, of long to becoming? What hinders you from growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? What keeps you from growing for love for Christ? What holds you back, friends? Is it pride? That's many of us. Is it your temper? That might be all of us. Is it your lack of contentment? I need that newest and greatest thing. I need more money. Maybe it's your friends. Maybe it's your lack of money. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's those deep sins that you keep to yourself that no one knows about? What is it that ultimately holds you back from being the Christian that God intends you to be? All of those are hindrances to the Christian life, are they not? But I would argue that all those things, discontentment, those sins that you have that no one knows about, your temper, your pride, come secondary to this one primary hindrance. This is this one thing that we all lack. Listen to the words of the 17th century English Puritan John Owen. He says this, The greatest hindrance in the Christian life is not our lack of effort, but our lack of acquaintedness with our privileges. Hear what he says. The greatest hindrance in the Christian life is not our lack of effort. It's not that you don't pray, read enough, go to church enough, but our lack of acquaintedness with our privileges. What Owen meant is simply this. Far too often the Christian fails to appreciate and fails to grasp the riches that are theirs in Jesus Christ. That is the greatest hindrance in the Christian life. It's failing to realize all that you have in Jesus Christ. We behave like men and women who are almost impoverished, who almost don't have enough when we have an exceedingly great bank balance. We act like we have nothing when Paul tells us that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. We act like we are homeless when it comes to spiritual things. And what we need in our Christian life is not simply to learn and hear of the privileges we have in Christ, but to learn and hear of those privileges and live in light of those great privileges. It's not enough to just hear the preacher, but you must act on what the preacher is saying, if the preacher preaches accurately and correctly. 
We must live in light of these great benefits, these great riches, these great privileges that we have in Jesus Christ. Saints, if you want to become the Christian that the Bible says that you are commanded to be, consider all of the riches that are yours by virtue of your union with Christ. You don't need to pray more. You don't need to read more. Just consider every single blessing that is yours in the Son. So this morning, saints, I want to reacquaint us with the privileges that we have by virtue of union with Christ. I want us to, for many of us, go back in time to when you were a first-year Christian, maybe, and everything about the Christian life was exciting to you. When you hear of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you might have cried. You might have wept when you thought about what Christ has done for you. I want us this morning to reconsider the blessings that we have in Christ. And to do that, let's please turn to the first letter of John. And if you are able, please stand. First John. We're going to be doing something a little bit differently. Um, Well, maybe maybe not so, but we're going to be skipping to a few passages. First John chapter 3. The word of the Lord says this. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. Now jump down to just one verse, verse 11 in chapter 3. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now let's skip over to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God loved us so, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God so that we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we have, may have confidence for the day of judgment, because 
as he is also, we are in the world. So there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has not seen, cannot have loved God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let's be seated. This morning I just have two points and then one point of application, but the first point is a love defined. A love defined. The second point, a love displayed or a love proved. And third, a love modeled. A love defined, a love proved, and a loved, and a love modeled. Let's consider the first point, a love defined. John says in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. And here's what we want to focus on in this point. Because God is love. God is love. Friends, if there's anything that we know about the nature of God, the being of God, who God is, It is that last statement by the Apostle John, is it not? God is love. And when we think about the love of God, we tend to focus on how God's love has been displayed. First and foremost, without even considering the type of love that God has. When we hear that God is love, we tend to focus on how God has shown his love rather than the type of love that is being shown. In other words, when we read that God is love, we are not to think of all the loving things he has done for us, first and foremost, but rather we are to think of the kind of love that God possesses. We want to focus in on what type of love is this love that God has. And when we do that, we see that God's love is far superior than to the greatest of human love. I want us to consider this question. What kind of love does God have? We know that God is love, and we know that he has shown his love to us in great ways, but what kind of love does he have? If one was to ask you, how is God's love different than human love? What would you say? Because love means something. But does that mean that God's love is analogous to the way that we love? Well, first, I just have four ways God's love is different than ours. And we're going to swim into the deep end a little bit, so beware. The first thing we must say about God's love is that God's love is incomprehensible. That God's love is incomprehensible. It was Herman Bavink, the great 
Dutch reformer who said that the, mystery, uh, the life of dogmatics, the lifeblood of dogmatics is mystery. Mystery. The doctrine of the incomprehensibility of God says that we can undoubtedly know God, for he has revealed himself to us, but we can't know God fully. We can know God, but we can't know God fully. We can apprehend God. We can touch God and who he is, but we can't fully wrap our minds. We can't circumscribe. We can't put God in a box that we can comprehend who he is. That everything we say about God, that there is a beyondness to the depths of who he is. That whatever we say true about God, we must come back to this essential truth that God is always deeper than our deepest thought of him. That God is always higher than our highest thought of him. And that truth couldn't be more evident when we consider the love of God. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 and 19, the Apostle Paul speaks of the greatness of God's love. God's love. He, it reads, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what the breath, what the length, what the height, what the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. But hear what he says here that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see, saints, Paul here affirms that God's love is incomprehensible. And he prays that these Christians will understand how truly great God's love is, how wide and how long and how deep and how great his love is. But in light of this, in light of exhorting these Christians to know the depths of God's love, to comprehend, to fully wrap your minds around God's love, he realizes that the Christian will never be able to fully understand God's love. That's what he means when he says, the love of God that surpasses knowledge. He exhorts Christians to know the ins and outs of God's love, but God's love surpasses knowledge. It's incomprehensible. Paul knows that we can't put a limit to God's love. Nor can we sum up God's love in a pithy statement. God's love surpasses human intellect. It surpasses the greatness and the most eloquent of human words. As Paul says, God's love is too wide, it's too deep, it's too long, it's too high. And friends, even me now, when we consider the love of God, I can, to the best of my ability, give you the most beautiful and poetic and eloquent and biblical description of God's love, but in reality, what am I really even doing? When we speak of the greatness of God's love, we are not even scratching the surface of the greatness of God's love. For God's love is incomprehensible. We can't put God's love in a box and say that I know the ins and outs of how God loves us. We all to rep reply or recite the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 11, when after he's talk, talked about the election in Christ and all of this, he says, oh, the depths of the wisdom and riches of God. We are to say, oh, the depths of the love of God. Oh, the height, oh, the length of the love of God. This is the first aspect of God's love that we must start with. 
This is the first aspect that we are to start with when we talk about God in general. That God is incomprehensible. We can know the love of God, but we can't know fully the love of God. The second aspect of God's love is God's love is independent. It's independent. The doctrine of the aseity of God says that God does not derive his life from anything or anyone. That God does not derive his life from anything or anyone. In other words, the aseity of God means that God is in need of no one or nothing. There's no one in back of God that gives God life, that gives God his being. He is dependent upon nothing. He is dependent upon no one for his existence. God is self-sufficient. God is self-sufficient. Our confession explains this well in chapter 2, paragraph 3. It reads, God, having all life, having all glory, all goodness, all blessedness in and of himself. He doesn't derive glory, blessedness, goodness, life from another, but in and of himself he has these things, is alone and unto himself all sufficient, standing in need of any creature, not standing in need of any creature which he hath made. And hear this, not deriving any glory from them. It's interesting that we are to give glory to God, are we not? But when we give glory to God, it's not as if that we are adding glory to the being of God. As if God is lacking glory, and when we give glory to God, we are adding something to him. God doesn't have a glory jar next to him, and when we give him glory, that glory jar is filling up. But when we give God glory, we are amening the glory that he already has. Acts 17, verses 24 and 25, Paul says, The God who made the, earth, the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. What man can comprehend can place God in a temple. Nor is he served by human hands. Who serves God as though he needed anything since he himself gives to mankind life, breath, and everything? What Paul is saying is God is in need of no one for life. No one gives to God his being which is quite different from us because we depend on God for our own existence, do we not? That we depend on that uncaused cause of all things, but God is independent. He is self-sufficient. He is all say. He's of himself. Isaiah 40, verse 14. Whom did he consult? Whom and whom made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Who gives to God knowledge? God doesn't look at the timeline. He doesn't look down the future. He doesn't learn anything about us. He doesn't learn anything about history. As one theologian has said, God knows creatures, but he doesn't know creatures that know them. He doesn't need creatures. He doesn't need the existence of creatures in order for him to know us fully and completely. God's knowledge is all say. It's of himself. Now you might ask, how does God's self-sufficiency and him being of himself and not need of no one have to do with the love of God? Hosea 14.4, God says to wicked Israel out their apostasy, I will love them freely. How does the doctrine of self-sufficiency or aseity 
relate to the love of God, God says, I will love them freely. For my anger has turned from them. God loves freely. He loves with a love that is independent. He does not depend on anything or anyone outside of himself or in himself to love. But he loves from the fullness of his being. Friends, you don't love freely. In fact, you have never loved freely. If you are married or currently in a relationship, you don't love your godly counterparts freely. But you were wooed. You were compelled to love. In other words, you cannot not love your godly counterparts. And in other words, in, in a lot of ways, you depend on your godly counterpart for your love to be heightened and for your love to be lessened. If Leela, for example, if I went home after service and there was some brand new Jordans waiting for me, my love for my wife would be heightened. But if I went home and the first thing she did was stab me with a knife, my love for her would be lessened. My love for her depends on her. It depends on outside circumstances. I don't love her freely. But with respect to God, his love is free. His love is independent. He doesn't depend on you to do anything for him but he loves from the fullness of his being. This point is made clear in Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 and 7 and 8. Uh, God says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And hear this. It is not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. God didn't bring Israel out because Israel were a lovely people. There wasn't anything in Israel that God would prize or treasure, but God chose to love Israel freely and independently. He could have loved the Assyrians. He could have loved the Babylonians, but he chose to love Israel. Last verse, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It wasn't that the world was lovely or that God needed the world to love him back. The world in its sin is unlovely. The world didn't move God to love, nor does he love in order to receive love back, for God is blessed eternal. And that's the, that's the mystery of the love of God, is it not? That when God loves, he doesn't love in order to receive some love back, like we do. We love certain people. We love many things in this world, but we desire to have that love back. And when that love is not returned, what do we do? We stop love. We stop loving. But here God, in the fullness of his being, loves from an independent, incomprehensible love. Thirdly, God's love is simple. God's love is simple. And the doctrine of and stay with me here. The doctrine of divine simplicity says that God is not a composite being. God is not a composite being. Meaning this, that we ourselves are a complex being, are we not? 
There's a lot that goes into our being in order for us to be us. If we didn't have an essence, then we wouldn't be human. If God didn't give to our essence existence, we wouldn't be here. We need our essence, we need our existence, but also we need attributes as well. If we didn't have the attribute of love, then we wouldn't be loving. If we didn't have the attribute of patience, we wouldn't be patient. There's a lot that goes into who we are in order for us to be. We are a composite being. We are made up of a lot of things, right? But what we are saying with God is God is not made up of a myriad of things. God is not given essence. Someone is not, God doesn't give to himself or someone doesn't give to God the godness of God. But God is his essence. No one gives to God existence. No one in back of God causes God to be, but rather God is life itself. But also when we think about the simplicity of God, what we are saying is God is not made up of his attributes. When we think about God, we often think that if we take the love of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God and the blessedness of God, the sovereignty of God, and we mix them up and shake well, we get God. God is not made up of love and grace and mercy. But rather what we are saying is God is love, grace, and mercy. He doesn't possess the attribute of grace, but he is grace itself. He doesn't possess the attribute of love, but he is love itself. God's attributes are identical to what it means for him to be God. God is love. The same can be said about us. For example, if I was to say that I, Isaiah, am wise and loving, I'm not wise and loving in virtue of myself. I'm wise and loving in virtue of those attributes of wisdom and love. In other words, it's in virtue of the attribute of love that I am loving. It's in virtue of the attribute of love that I am loving. But what we are saying with God is it's in virtue of God that he loves. Not something outside of him that causes him to love. But from the fullness of his his own being, it's in virtue of himself that he loves. God doesn't love because he has, in addition to his essence, a property called love, but God loves in virtue of God. What beautiful knowledge and what majestic uh, doctrine that is. Again, our text this morning in 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. Not that God has love, not that God possesses love, but he is love. It is God's very nature to love. And the beauty of divine simplicity teaches us that God is not only loving, and hear me here, God is not only loving, but he is the love by which he loves. He is the very love by which he loves. And since God's love is identical to his being, then his love can't be heightened or lessened. It can't be diminished or taken away. God can no more fail to love than he can fail to be. Saints, In other words, if God was to one moment, in one second, stop loving you, then he would cease to be God. It is his very nature to love. 
What beautiful doctrine, divine simplicity is. That God loves from his own being, not from this property or attribute called love, but he loves in virtue of himself. The last aspect of God's love is that God's love is immutable. God's love is immutable. The doctrine of divine immutability says that God does not change. That's it. That God does not change in any way, shape, or form. God cannot change in what he plans, his decrees. He cannot change in his perfection, his attributes. He cannot change in any way, shape, or form. His being doesn't change. His perfection doesn't change. His purposes doesn't change. His promises never change. God doesn't change intrinsically. There's not change that comes about in God. Or there's nothing outside of God that brings about change. And this truth speaks volumes when we consider the doctrine of God's love. Malachi chapter 1 verse 2, God says to Israel, I have loved you. God tells this stubborn, unfaithful nation, people who have lost sight of God's love and mercy and grace, people who have dishonored God and their sacrifices and offerings, who no longer think that God's working all things together for their good. They no longer trust in God. They no longer want God. Their love for God has changed, but God declares from the very outset that I still love you in spite of all the wicked things you have done, in spite of you being unfaithful, being a horrible bride, I still love you. And this should be a lesson to us as well. Just because all of the outward proofs of God's love may have disappeared doesn't mean that God has actually stopped loving you. Just because you have lost your job, just because you can't get over this sin problem, just because your father or your mother or your child or whoever died doesn't mean that God has stopped loving you. Saints, God's love is perfect. And to whom he sets his love upon, it never changes. It never diminishes. It never heightens. Saints, we are to thank God that his love for us is so unlike ours. Our love is constantly on a roller coaster. Constantly, our love is being going up, it's been going down. But thank God, He is nothing like us. His love is infinite, it's simple, it's unchanging. Uh, Psalm 100, uh, verse 5 For the Lord is good, His steadfast love endures forever, and His faithfulness to all generations. God's love does not run out for his elect, nor does it diminish at any time. God says in Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Saints, this is sweet news, is it not? Since God cannot change, then his love for us cannot change. Since God is simple, then his love for us is simple. Since God is independent, he is self-sufficient, then his love for us is self-sufficient. This is what we learned from God and who, and the type of love that he is, that it's incomprehensible, that it's independent, it's simple, it's unchanging. And friends, this is so important for us to grasp. 
so important for us to understand. Because many Christians have a view of God's love that's a liken to ours, or maybe it's a tad bit better. In fact, one theologian has said that if God's love is not like ours, then is it even love in general? Is it even love? If God's love is not like ours, then how can it even be love? Friends, I don't know about you, but I don't want God's love to be nothing like mine. I want God's love to be eternal, infinite, and unchanging. I don't want God's love to be on a roller coaster like mine. I don't want God to be in the same category as I am. I want there to be an infinite distance between the way I love and the way that God loves. God's love is nothing like ours. And this is what we are to learn from the first point, is that God's love is so unlike ours. Let's consider the second point, a love proved. A love proved. We have defined God's love. We have seen that it is this perfect love that God has set upon his people. Now let's see this love in action. John says in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that God loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. John says that the way that God has shown his glorious love to us, the way that God has shown this infinite, eternal, unchanging, simple, incomprehensible love to us is by sending forth His Son. And saints, this is so important to take note of because when we think of our salvation in Christ, we must not detach the Father. When we think of all of the benefits, when we think of the gospel, we must not detach and we must not remove the role of the Father. It was Octavius Winslow who has said, who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. It was the Father who sent forth his Son. It was the Father who planned this salvation. It was the Father that struck his Son with that sword. Saints, when we consider the cross, how often do we just think that it's Christ showing his love for his people and we lose complete sight of the Father showing his love for his people? The message of the cross is not Christ is dying so that the Father will love us. Jesus doesn't live, die, and rise in order for the Father, in order for the to earn some type of love from the Father. But the message of the cross is not that the Father is trying or the Son is trying to get the Father to love us, but rather it's look and see how much the Father does love you. That's what, from, from the pulpit of the cross, Jesus Christ is the great preacher that's preaching the love of the Father to us. That the eternal Father loves you in this manner. 
that he sent his only begotten son to die for you. The Apostle Paul sums this up best in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. The father did not spare his own son. And I've been meditating on this verse for weeks now. And I think about my own life as I now have a son. Many of you who have only children, only one child. Could you possibly give up? your only child for wicked and rebellious people. And think about the child that the son or the father has. I love my son, Owen. But there is an infinite distinction between the love that I have for my son and the love that the father has for his son. For all eternity, the father has only known the son. The father has only delighted in his son. The father has only shown the son his glorious love. There was never a time when the son mis, uh, uh, displeased his father. But out of love, it is this one that the father sends to save a people. And the amazing thing of all this is that we did not earn the Father's love. That's what John says in verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. God does not set his love upon us because we loved him. He doesn't look down the corridors of time and see that me or Antonio or Anthony are going to set his, our love upon him, thereby he sets his love upon us. But God sets his love upon us, even in our most dreaded and dire estate. In our most wicked estate, we did not draw God's love toward us. Because, friends, there was nothing beautiful in us that could be seen. What could God see in us that for him to say, oh, I love that one? We did not compel we did not woo God's saving love toward us, but rather from the fullness of his being, he set his love upon us in times eternal. And what sweet news that is, but friends, hear me now. We aren't to think that this is the apex of God's demonstration of love for us. We aren't to think that God setting his love upon us and sending his son is the apex of his love for us. For John wants us to go deeper into the way God's love has been proved towards his people. Consider with me what he says in chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Saints, what is the apex of God's demonstration of love toward us? It is the Father adopts us as children. J.A. Packer says, Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Now that's a striking thing to say, is it not? Because when we think of the highest privilege that the gospel offers, 
our minds immediately jump to justification. We think that because we are viewed, or no longer viewed as a guilty sinner, but as an innocent saint, that that is the very apex, that is the great benefit and privilege of the gospel. Or we might think of the new life that we have in Christ, that we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are conquerors in Christ, that those things are the great privileges of the gospel, but not adoption. In fact, for many of us, adoption doesn't even come into our minds. But friends, hear Packer's reasoning. He says, in adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of this relationship. To be right with God, the judge, justification, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father, by adoption, is a greater Hear what he says here. What Packer is arguing is in justification, our relationship to God is a liken to an innocent criminal to a judge. In justification, God is our judge. And from the vantage point of adoption, God is not our judge, but he's our father. We are not merely an innocent criminal before God, but we are God's children. That is why, to a certain extent, adoption is greater than justification. Because we don't see God as our judge, but we see God as our Father. You see, friends, the doctrine of adoption teaches us that there is a rich, close relationship that exists between us and God. To where God is not simply our God, but God is our Father. He's not simply some just deity out there in heaven, but he is our father in heaven. And saints, what privilege can we find that's greater than that? That God is our father. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, 15, 16, For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. He says in Galatians 3.26, For in Jesus Christ you are all sons of God through faith. John says in John 1.12, But to all who did receive him and believe his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. The overall testimony of the Bible is the apex of our union with Christ, is calling God our Father. Now we must ask, what does it mean for the Father to be our Father? Well, first and foremost, it doesn't mean that the Father is a male. When we think of the Father, we aren't to think that he's a male, nor are we think if he's a female. Nor when we think of the Father, we aren't to think that it's just simply some metaphor. That sounds nice. But when we think of the name Father, this name identifies and establishes the intimacy God has with his people. The name Father comes from a certain place because God, instead of his naming himself maker or creator 
or sustainer. He names himself Father because it speaks of the unique relationship that he first has with his son and that he has with us, his children. It's a real and close relationship that's alike into a father and his child. And as you read, and this close uh, and real relationship is pictured for us in the life of Jesus Christ. Many times in the gospel, Jesus speaks of his father. He speaks of coming from his father He speaks of going back to his father, obeying his father, only speaking the words of his father, knowing the father, loving the father. And all of this teaches us of the unique and special relationship that Jesus Christ has had with his father from all eternity. Christ is the natural son of the father. From all eternity, the son has shared in the most intimate and loving communion with his father. And what the gospel teaches us, friends, is that in Christ, in the Son, in the natural Son, we are invited into that same loving, intimate, and eternal relationship that the Son shares with His Father. In Jesus Christ, you share in that mutual love relationship between the Father and the Son. What Jesus Christ, the Son of God, knows by nature that is the exceedingly greatness love of his Father, is what we receive and experience by grace. What Jesus knows is what we experience and receive by grace. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, 5, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. It is in our elder brother that we become brothers and sisters to our elder brother. And as we become brothers and sisters to our elder brother, we become the children of God, the Father. We have been adopted into the Father's family. We have been made sons and daughters in the Son, Jesus Christ. Do you know that, saint? That you are a son, that you are a daughter in the Son, Jesus Christ. And when God looks upon the Son, He sees the sons, brothers, and sisters. He sees you. He sees me. Dr. Blair Smith says rightly, becoming a Christian then means coming into that father-son relationship. Isn't that beautiful? Becoming a Christian means coming into that father-son relationship. That you are not some secondary child just because you're adopted. But you enter into the very fellowship that the Father has with His Son. By adoption, we enjoy and participate in the mutual love relationship between the Father and the Son. As one theologian has said, God has made us so that He could be our Father in a way that reflects His fatherly relationship to His Son. What this means, saints, is we are not children of God in some abstract sense. We are not children of God because it sounds good. But we actually share in the eternal relationship between the Father and the Son. That's what it means to be a child of God. It means to come and enjoy and experience the very life of the Trinity in the Spirit 
in the Son, we gain privilege of calling God our Father. The same thing that was on Christ's lips. We have the privilege to recite an echo from our very own lips. What a privilege that is. When we pray, we can approach God as God. We can say, dear God, our heavenly God. But I would argue that we ought to approach God as Father. Just as a child climbs up to their father's lap and approaches their parent, when we pray, we have the privilege of calling God our Father. That's what we're going to do this evening. We all, as God's children, are going to have the privilege. And I hope that you do see prayer as a privilege. You have the privilege of saying, Abba, Father. And the great benefit of that is as God's children, we can come boldly to our Father's throne room and he will incline his ear to hear us. Because what parent doesn't hear their child? Saints, as we close this point, if you were to ask the average person on the street, if they believed in the fatherhood of God, the common answer you might receive is, yes, we're all God's children. One way or another, from the homosexual to the bisexual to the sin breaker, our law, lawbreaker, to the, to the one who sins, that we are all God's children. But saints, the Bible is crystal clear that those who are outside of Christ are strangers to the family of God. But in God's loving kindness and rich mercy, he sends his son and he welcomes us into his family. In Jesus Christ, God has made those who weren't a people a people. In Jesus Christ, he has brought those who are far off, so close and near to him. Friends, you are valuable in the sight of God. I didn't get that from Joel Osteen. But you are truly valuable in the sight of God. For the value that you have as the Father's children is an imputed value. It's a value that you do not have in and of yourself. You see, God didn't love you because you're valuable. But because he loves you, you became valuable. And it's only in that one who is truly valuable, Jesus Christ, that we are valuable and we are the sons and daughters of Christ. Saints, this is the heart of the Christian message. And don't remove this from your gospel presentation. That if you repent of your sins, you will find Christ to be a perfect Savior and you will be adopted into the greatest relationship in all eternity. As we come to the end of our sermon for this morning, let's quickly consider the implications of the Father's love of adoption. And that is the love or our love modeled. What should our response be in light of our adoption as God's family? How should we live in light of this great love and this great love being poured to us through adoption. John says in 1 John 3.16, by, uh, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. He says in 1 John 4.20-21, if anyone says, I love God, 
and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother, whom he has, whom he has uh, seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment that we have heard from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. One of the ways that we live out our adoption is by loving our brothers and sisters of the faith. One of the ways we live out this great love that God has shown for us in being united to Christ and sharing in this intimate and loving fellowship and relationship is by loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is a point that John has been continuing to stress throughout this entire letter. That love to God means love for our brothers and sisters of the faith. Malachi says to Israel in chapter uh, 2, verse 10, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? When God adopts us as his child, we aren't meant to stay an only child. But God surrounds us with a family. Our Christian life is to be characterized by our love for God and our love for our brothers and sisters in God. John says in verse 21 of chapter 4, whoever loves God must also love his brother. We're commanded, saints, and hear me now, we're not commanded to simply tolerate our brothers and sisters. That's how many Christians think when they are so into themselves. I can, I can simply tolerate them. And I can get away with it. Or we're not called to love only those who are easy to love. We all know that there's many Christians out there who are very hard to love. We are called to love those Christians. We are called to have fellowship with those Christians. Our love is to be extended to all, to the most immature Christian, to the most mature Christian of the faith. Because it is that type of love that confirms your claim to love God. You claim that you love God? Well, let's see how your love is shown to your brothers and sisters of the faith. How much time do you give them? We are to love our spiritual brothers and sisters of the faith the same, if not more, than our fleshly brothers and sisters of the faith, or of of blood. The love that we have for our brothers and sisters of the faith. There is to be no distinction between those who are of the same blood and those who are of the same faith. I love my brother Antonio just as much as I love my sister Betty. Because that is my sister in Christ. And this is my blood brother. But I love them equally and as much. Because Christ commands me to. Saints, this is how we show the love of God that is shown to us. is by showing and loving those whom others don't want to love. By loving those who God commands us to love. Not being so into ourselves that we only love our best friends in the church. Or only the ones that we have the most in common with. Friends, there was only one common denominator that is Jesus Christ and the faith that we have and share with him. In closing, J.I. Packer said, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child. 
and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. I don't care what you know. You can know the Trinity inside out. You can know the hypostatic union inside out. You can know the ins and outs of the Bible. But if you don't understand and take delight in being God's child, then you don't understand Christianity at all. I would also add that if a child of God doesn't love other children of God, then you don't understand Christianity very well. We began this sermon by asking the question, what hinders you in your Christian life? And what are the things that we should avoid that causes us the greatest hindrances? I would propose that before we seek counseling, that before we buy various books to help us, and before we commit to start going to church more or praying more, think of the privileges that you have in Jesus Christ. Think of every single benefit that you have in Jesus Christ. That this one who is infinite and eternal, who loves with a simple, incomprehensible unchanging love has chose to set his love upon a people who are unloving. And in the fullness of time, he sends his son to live, die, and rise for us. And by union with his son, we enter into the greatest and most intimate and close relationship in the son. We are children of the father. We share in that mutual love relationship between the Father and the Son. Saints, do you know that? And do you live that out? I pray you do. And I pray that this sermon brought much of those things back to the forefront of your mind. Let's pray.